Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Scott Weaver's right as a fund manager with a strong entrepreneurial background, having built and exited two businesses. We discuss his journey on the first of those, how he built a family business into one of the country's leading e-commerce platforms with some big challenges along the way. It's a great story. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries.harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today in the podcast, we have Scott Weavers Wright from Hatch Group. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. As usual, we'd like to start with getting to know a little bit about you. So can you tell us briefly how you became an EIS fund manager? Good question. Um, and I would say by accident. I have, I'm a serial investor and I ran my own investment business, which I started in 2013. And we have been investing the last seven years in digital startups in the UK, Ireland, and in the US. And a couple of years ago, a bunch of my high net worth friends and friends in general uh, asked if they could co-invest alongside me. And eventually I said yes. And we formed Hatch Ventures, which is, as you know, an FCA, FCA compliant EIS fund. Excellent. So... On the podcast today, we're going to dig into your history a little bit, actually, because as you mentioned, you're a serial entrepreneur and you have had not one, but two very successful exits, each of which is quite different. So what we'd like to do is dig into each of those a little bit and see how we get on. Shall we start at the beginning with Kitty Care? And you want to tell us a bit about Kitty Care and how you came into Kitty Care? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I'll try and keep this semi-brief because I do get carried away with Kitty Care and Elevate because, you know, they are very, um, very close to my heart. Um, Kitty Care was uh, my wife's family business, and it was a small independent store in Peterborough um, providing car seats, cots, cribs, mattresses, rattles and alike to the Peterborough community. And it had been going for, call it about 20 years, so late 70s. And I came along with my tech background because I started at the age of 18 in tech or 16 on YTS, if you want to call it 16 on 35 quid a week in YTS. And in 18, I decided to start my own business in tech, um, creating um, what we call in those days, those days, LANs, local area networks and wide area networks, which is the four, the forerunner to the internet. And in parallel, I was spending more and more time at Kitty Care, which was 15 staff, um, corner shop with a car park type of arrangement. But I loved it. I was infected by it. The enthusiasm that my in-laws had for the business was extraordinary. And I just thought, wow, what would happen if we kind of led a transformation program here? Now, transformation is a big word. Mm-hmm. It's a corporate word. It's a corporate word. So, but I can at only the time, did you it. think of it as transformation? Not at all. Just common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Purely common sense. And I was going to just layer a, a tech solution over the top. Because, look, we had a brilliant business, but we didn't know what we sold. We had no BI. We had no intelligence. We had no barcodes. People used to queue to be served. We used to demonstrate the product, and then we used to write a ticket out. They used to take that ticket to the till, 
with a bit of luck, the till person could read my writing and it was 69, not 99 or 99, 99. You can imagine the challenges we used to have. And then if it was a big item, they used to go to the back door to collect it by handing the ticket in. And then somebody at the back door had to go and find it in the little warehouse with a bit of luck. They found it within 20 minutes. And if you times it by, I don't know, a couple of hundred people on a Saturday, you get into a challenging environment. I'm not going to say mess, but you get into a challenging environment. So back in 99, I saw this. That's 1999. Yeah, sorry. My goodness. Yeah, back in 1999, I saw this as a huge opportunity and we tech enabled it. And um, in English, we started with the website, but clearly... You know, in those days, that was a kind of a, a payment gateway, a catalog to, to display the product and some kind of a little small inventory solution online. But if you fast forward it a couple of years later, what we needed to have was a, you know, what we call in, the, in, in corporate world is a, a ERP solution, enterprise uh, planning tool. So we knew what we ordered. We knew when it was coming in. When it came in, we knew where it was stored. We knew what price it was. And therefore, when you put these products on the shop floor with barcodes, you knew what you sold, how much you sold them for. And of course, with BI, you knew from an intelligence point of view how much you were selling and what you were selling and what the association was. So we transformed Kitika into a a monster. And um, what I mean by monster is that we became the biggest independent baby store in Europe. So we went from a small village environment to a 12,000 pallet stored in high bay racking, lorries coming in, pick trucks, uh, forklift trucks, putting them away, being told electronically where to put goods. Those goods being moved from a pit location to a, um, from a store location to a pit location by the system because there was orders coming in. You know, and it was exciting and amazing. And we went to 340 staff. And I've got a real amazing soft spot for that journey because we automated the whole business to the point where we trained the staff to effectively troubleshoot. A really exciting journey. And I I use technology in every single aspect of that business, uh, even to the point where where what we call nowadays a VoIP or your your phone is over the internet, voice IP. And we all kind of probably use it as standard now particularly when you use FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, Microsoft products to to talk on conferencing, that's all over IP, voice, and voice over IP, VoIP. And we used to have customers ring into the queue and we used to work out how many were ringing in and how many operators could could answer their calls. And we used to say, can you wait two minutes and three minutes and put them in a queue? Um, What was more importantly is that when they put the phone down because they didn't want to hold, because we had to realize these are mums and dads with babies on their shoulder, screaming at them, um, hormones all over the place, stress levels all over the place, is that if that, if that customer put the phone down and didn't ring back, at five o'clock in the afternoon, we used to close our call centre and then ring everybody back who had put the phone down. And they, and they were blown away. And that was just an example of how to use technology and how to enable customer service. And we we went on. It was a wonderful journey. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I and, really enjoyed it. Yeah, and and then you sort of great achievement. There seems to be a bit of a gap there between the small family-run business, fifteen people and three hundred forty people. There's obviously a journey in there that is worth digging into. What was this kind of the first step along the way of what you did? 
And I, people, people ask me all the time, you know, because obviously we sold Kiddie Care for 70 million, so that's seven zero in cash. And people say to me, my goodness, what a story. It was 23 and a half times EBITDA. You know, we had an award for, 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 for the, you know, the EBITDA, let alone all the awards we won in the industry. You know, blimey, the M&A people won an award for the EBITDA. <laughs> uh, you have to start. And we started by um, installing, going online. And look, let's be really let's be really honest about it. Going online in 1999 was shoving together uh, in those days Microsoft front page, and then f- chucking together a product called SecPay, which was the payment gateway, and then chucking together some kind of catalog which held the products, and then taking pictures of the products ourselves mm-hmm. uh, with no professional, you know, view of how it should look, and then sticky tape together a web solution which called e-com or e-commerce or commas and and then going out onto the and then publishing it on kiddiecare.com and hosting it ourselves on on on, on a provider and then going online wow yeah. what a journey and yeah. i remember the first order i remember the first order brian it was a mclaren it was a push chair it was a mclaren techno push chair my favorite actually because it was 104 149.99 retail and we sold it for 19 for 19 99.99 and it because remember kitty care was a value proposition our competitors such as mamas and papas and and mother care john lewis i suppose peter jones used to sell items pretty much at retail but we were a value proposition we were about having items in stock and selling what we had and what Surprisingly, that surprised the industry because all of a sudden we were selling product for the same week delivery, whereas other people didn't have the stock. But we only sold what we had. So it was slightly strange. But in those days, um, people didn't do that. Now it's the norm to have next day delivery. Now it's the norm because we've been trained to expect maybe even same day delivery if you're in a city particularly because of with mobile and on demand. But going back into the kiddie care days, uh, people didn't expect, you know, we were competing against Freeman's. Remember Freeman's, the mail order catalog, Just those about, kind yeah. of things. Yeah. yeah. And ironically, Freeman's, Freeman's was based in Peterborough. Very big success story for Peterborough. And in Freeman's, you ordered the product, you got it in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and that's how I, it worked on catalog. And was that something that was kind of born out of necessity, I suppose, in a sense? If, if you just sold what you had in stock, then... That, that seems like the that just seemed like the natural business model to adopt. Isn't it extraordinary? The back then people were selling stuff they didn't have, and they were clearly using the money to fund the purchase mm-hmm. of the product. We were slightly different. We 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 seem to have struck a, a, a chord where we sold what we what we had. Now, don't get me wrong; we clearly had to we had to stop push chairs and. And, and cots and car seats, because that's the industry we were in, mattresses. That's the industry we, we were in. And therefore, we put them online, we put them in our catalogue, and we put them, we, we press saved and we press published, and that put them online. Um, and people started to buy goods. What was really cool about that is that we discovered very, very quickly, and it wasn't cool at the time, is that our suppliers weren't shipping us goods that were mail order compatible. So the boxes were too fragile. The boxes were, were, were not good enough to even stack in the warehouse on top of each other, let alone ship. So we learned some really hard, hard lessons. And I tell you what, Brian, when you're dealing with mum, 
who is pregnant or mum who's had a baby, she will tell you every step of the way what you do wrong. And it's, it was probably a wonderful education for us because whilst we knew how to uh, effectively buy product, we knew how to sell it in our small independent store, which was about 5,000 square foot. So it wasn't as small as you may think. The reality is the customers used to take the goods away. When we had to stock volumes of them and, and carefully hold stock in right locations and, uh, and, 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 and stack it correctly, huge problem, huge problem, and ship it, we really, really struggled. We really struggled to find a courier, and there was many in those days, to do what we call B2C. They were all B2B players. They were all B2B. So, um, yeah, it was a, um, a, a wonderful journey. And um, we um, were not afraid of technology. And so if I give you an example, KiddieCare replatformed five times in 13 years. That seems um, quite a lot. Yeah. And to give, your, to give your, um, your, your listeners an example of replatform. So we would chuck out our stock system our software, we would chuck out maybe our EPOS software, we would chuck out our web catalog, um, payment gateway software, even front page, which is a Microsoft um, web design tool at the time, and start again. And I remember we went from front page to to e-roll, from e-roll to vendor. Vendor is basically the forerunner forerunner for Shopify. Shopify is now the, the norm, but vendor was a B2B solution for um, big corporates like uh, Mothercare and Argos and Boots and BT actually BT Shop was on vendor and then from you know from vendor we went to IBM so we became this you know if you can imagine the journey over 13 years yeah um, we we went from a small catalog and when we were taking 99 pound orders to an IBM WebSphere solution that Argos used where we were taking when we were doing 50 60 million a year. And we were receiving 4,000 orders a day. And we were picking 17,000 items a day. And we got, we got to a point, Brian, where we were shipping 17,000 items before 11 a.m. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, and it was very exciting. But yeah. I, um, So each, each of these replatformings, was that something where the business was developing and the growing pains and the technology couldn't cope with it or was that technology in the background was improving along the way and this suddenly you saw something well that would make us work better it was a mixture of both because my previous kind of life was an it consultant you know i used to build these networks in london and stuff so i, I wasn't afraid to change i think the, the, the challenge you have with a family business is to keep on innovating and then bring the family with you because if you, if, you, if you think about that, you know, you, you, you start and then you say, right, guys, we, we've got more business. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change the software and we're going to retrain our little crew. And who's our little crew? Well, our little crew is the people behind that we're doing the, on the tills. Or it was the guys in the warehouse. Or it was the girls on the shop floor. You know, we didn't have an e-com crew. I was the crew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was probably my wife. <laughs> um, so the crew. And then, you know, a, couple, a year in or 18 months in, we decided to change. And then again, a, a, two years later, we, we decided to change. We, but we were doubling the business every six months. So it's a mixture of both. First of all, you can't go from A to Z. There's a journey. You can't 
bring a business around to such a degree that we can say, all right, let's go from a simple couple of hundred pound website and a bit of this and a bit of that to a quarter of a million pound IBM web sphere with 150,000 pounds a year licensing fees. You know, you just can't, that journey doesn't exist. You have to go in steps. So we, we went in steps and it was an education process for the staff, more importantly, for the family as well, because you had to sell a vision to the family. When I joined Kitty Care, we were a very successful independent store. Store. When, when I left Kitty Care, we were the biggest online store in Europe. You can't, you can't go from one warehouse to five, then from five warehouses to building your own DC with 12,000 pallet location in high bay racking when the start was one box on a floor, which wasn't good enough to be shipped. It's, um, it's an absolute monster, monster journey. But we did something, we did something Brian, which I'll, I'll, I'll say this to you, and it's a term which I very rarely use, and it's called blitz scaling. So blitz scaling is a book I've written in the States uh, about, you know, kind of um, online businesses, B2B, which kind of go out there and just, just own the joint, have lots of funding, destroy, have a huge customer base and don't make any money until the end. Facebook. You know, how much money did Facebook raise? Amazon. How much money did Amazon raise until they were profitable? They spent 20 years being unprofitable before they turned the corner and now they own the world. So when we sold Kitty Care, which was a big decision, and we, should, and we, we probably should go into that. But when we sold Kitty Care, we had 17 bids for the business. And I met, I met, I'm, and 17 bids means Boots, Argos, Mothercare. I was going to ask because it seemed to me you talked about growing this business. And if I think back to the late 90s, there you had Mothercare out there, you had John Lewis, whatever. There was no shortage of people selling children's stuff. And you come from not nowhere, but relatively sort of, you know, these guys not. You know, I can imagine Mother Care. At some point, someone in Mother Care has said, well, hang on, there's someone selling stuff online. We can do that. And with all their resources, they should be piling in. What happened to the competition? Well, I think that's a great question. At the time, Mother Care were up in arms because of our value proposition. So if you can imagine we're selling McLaren pushchairs for $99.99 instead of $149.99, which was the retail price. Therefore, we, we, were we were eroding their margin because customers were coming to us. So they were not happy. And the pressure that Mothercare used to put on the suppliers to stop supplying us was huge. Mothercare was a billion pound business. It was 400 million in the UK and 600 million in the world. It was a monster. But like all oil tankers, they really struggled um, and they struggled to see the new world and the new world was online. They, they made a bet that um, the new world was uh, franchisees in, in, in the Far East selling their, their, their clothing line because of margin and they, they, took the, they took their eye off the ball. The same for Toys R Us, the same for John Lewis. You have to remember, we had one store and one large internet site. We ended up with the biggest store in Europe and the biggest 
online store in Europe in Baby. So our focus was the customer. Their focus was store. They wanted store expansion. They wanted two, three, four hundred stores around the country. And their focus was, was that and small inventory. Our focus was massive inventory. And what, what we used to do, Brian, to give you an example of how to beat the competition, we used to publish our stock. And people used to say to me, what are you doing, you idiots? If you publish your stock against the car seat, let's call it a Britax Renaissance car seat, which was kind of a two to three year old car seat, then surely they'll be able to work out how much you sell. And I said, yeah, fantastic. More importantly, in the early days of online, it's all about confidence for the consumer, for the customer, for, for mum. And she needed, to, she needed to know that we had to stock. Is that presumably because kitty care is something she'll never have heard of, whereas mother of care would have that credibility, I guess. Spot on. We so so we if you think about it from a regional play, we used to own Peterborough, maybe Cambridgeshire, we used to own the county, but you didn't know about us in Bournemouth, let's be honest. You knew about mother care, you certainly knew about John Lewis, and you probably heard of Babies R Us because they connected to Toys R Us. However, I mean you may be an independent down there as well. So we were we were struggling, but we weren't. Because we utilize Google SEO. We used we utilize Google PPC, you know, pay-per-click. And we were violent on rapid deployment of our technology. We were at we were the first people in the UK to do Google AdWords. We were the first people we were the first, we were the we were on the beta program. We were the first people to do in the UK, forget the sector, to do YouTube overlays. Now you can't blame me. Nowadays, when you go on YouTube for the YouTube overlays, but clearly <laughs> it was something it was something we beta tested for Google with Google for Kitty Care, and it worked really well. But you're spot on. Who knows Kitty Care? So when you landed on Kitty Care, not only did you see five thousand products in stock, not only did we display only what we had in stock. We shipped it for next day delivery. So if you ordered it before 5 p.m. and there was a countdown ticker, TikTok, you sh- you got it at you got it the following day. And then we invented a thing which now is normal text delivery. So in the morning you got a text message saying it will be with you between 10 and 11 o'clock. Guess what, Sherlock? That was Kitty Care's text. Still Kitty not Care's as normal as I'd like actually. That, but <laughs> we'll put that to one side. <laughs> Um, so we made it sticky. We made it sticky, Brian. We made it sticky. Yeah. And the final thing I say, I'll say about Kitty Care was that we had 5,000 product videos. Every single product had a video demonstration of the goods being used. And none of our competitors did it. But all of our, cust- all of our customers appreciated it. And it doubled, it doubled the conversion per product. And none of our competitors did it. So it was a, so once you focused online and you focus on mum and you focus on the customer using the product, i.e. the web, and they land on your site, what do you want them to do? You want them to put items in your basket and you want them to check out and you want to ship those goods, pick and ship, and you want them to get the following day and then you want them to give you a review. We had 252,000 customer reviews. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the time, I... I was an investment manager, so I saw a lot of this from the other side at the time. And it's clear there was some sort of revolution going on. But you very much at the coalface, you know, to, to what extent were these 
innovations that you created? To what extent did you see there's other things going in the world? I can steal an idea here. I can steal an idea there. Um, so it's just, you're spot on. It's all I did. You know, it's all I did. And I clearly couldn't steal any, any ideas from my UK competition. Mm-hmm. So I looked, I, looked, I looked to America. Now, America was slightly behind when it came to B2C online. Amazon was going, but, but not in baby. We, we had a product called, there was a company called Diapers. And diapers were acquired by Amazon. And uh, there was a guy there, he used to be the owner, a guy called Mark, who went on to found Jet, Jet.com, which was acquired for, by, by Walmart for $3 billion. So I kind of mod- I kind of modelled my early kind of ideas on on him a little bit, and then I looked at things like Home Depot in America. Home Depot, their 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 display three across, four across on 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 browse looked amazing. So I basically looked and stole ideas, Brian, from about ten of my peers outside of the industry and in my industry, and formed and formed Kitty Care. But I never forgot it was about the customer. I never forgot yeah. it was about the customer. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as you say, if, in that sector, if you get it wrong, the customers will let you know. You've got to, I used to call them raving fans. You have to create raving fans. You have to over-deliver them. And um, we actually went out. We couldn't always do it. You know, sometimes when you deliver the wrong colour pushchair, you know, a day before the holiday, you are going to get it in the ear. And... Uh, you know, we ha- and you have to learn by that, and you really do, and you have to automate as much as possible so you don't get it wrong. And that starts with goods in, all the way to goods out, to training your staff. I used to have my warehouse manager ring a customer up if we shipped the wrong product. Not my customer service, ladies. My warehouse manager, because he or she, and it was a she, it was Jackie, used to feel clearly upset that we've picked and shipped the wrong product we used to have massive massive investigation into it but my goodness apart from okay the customer got a call and, and maybe they were happier but when we delivered the wrong product we need to sort it but my warehouse my, my, my manager took ownership of it and we, we we empowered that ownership across the business and it was um, extraordinary to see mm-hmm. but it's called blitz and i called it blitz scaling yeah yeah so, so you mentioned it's about empowering people when you scale that quickly, that's that's nice to say, but how easy is that actually to do in practice? To take it in, in in chunks, you can't eat an elephant in one in one sitting. So we talked about replatforming. So when you when when we started in '99, we had X. When we replatformed in 2001, we had more people to help with the replatforming at that time. So in that time we went to we went we had we had a new stock control system, a new catalog online system, and and, and more stocks and more catalog on, online. In 2002, 2003, we made a huge leap because we joined um, maybe the big boys. So the big boys were in our case were um, Boots and BT Shop and Mothercare, and they were on a platform called Vendor, which doesn't exist. In fact, Oracle bought it. Net, Net, a company called NetSuite bought them, and NetSuite had been acquired by Oracle now. So we were on a product called Vendor, and that was a massive leap. And at each leap, you're 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 growing the team, and you're empowering the team because you can't do it all. I I realised very quickly I couldn't be in the warehouse picking, and I couldn't be unloading, and I couldn't be publishing stock. I couldn't be doing customer service inquiries, and I, um, but what? But when you were in it, you learned a lot. You learned a lot about the quality of the boxes. 
You learned a lot about the quality of the people. You understood what you needed to understand about what kind of recruitment that you should do. Because in the olden days, when we were recruiting people for the, the shop floor, with, with respect, we used to recruit based on hourly pay. You know, if it was six, if it was five quid an hour or six quid an hour, then we would we would we would we would recruit you based on, on on the cheapest option for us. We were a family business. You know, family businesses have to have to be thrifty. They don't have like in the new days, like you see nowadays with VC money. They don't have didn't have that kind of money. We had to we had to we had to start from scratch. It was what we call nowadays bootstrapped. You had to be very thrifty. So, you know, we did empower those folks, um, Brian, and, and eventually we, we carved out a, a kind of web team um, who looked after um, the payment gateway solution and the fraud challenges. 10% of our orders were fraud, Brian. 10% mm. of our orders were fraud. You know, and you don't get that money back if you ship the goods. It's your fault. Ouch. So we had to develop all sorts of solutions and all sorts of departments and people and it was a huge UK success story. So you mentioned several times this was a family business. Now, it seems to me, I mean, I could imagine back in the late 90s showing up with people from a generation above and saying, there's this thing called the internet. I think we should be on it. And people looking at you like you're from another planet or something. I don't know. How was it, at, you know, introducing these sort of ideas and developing presumably eventually got momentum but at the start it must have been a challenge from the start it was start it, it was a it was a challenge from the the start the get-go and it was a challenge all the way until we sold you have to understand you know it's like it's like a a, a mafia movie family businesses like mafia movies you know <laughs> you have the god you, you have the founders you have the godfather then you have the second generation coming along thinking that well, they are the godfathers. They are the people who make the decisions now. And they have this confrontation. And then you add in, by the way, we're going to do online internet sales. What, what's that? So they really embraced it um, along the 13, 14 years that I was uh, chief exec and chief architect and tech dude. Um, and they, they really embraced it. But my goodness, it had some real challenges. And sometimes you have to you have to make decisions that are for the good of the family and good of the business, but not exactly explain yourself. And therefore, it's a gamble to make sure you get it right. So, you know, if, you, if I decide to replatform on the second or third time, which is a cost implication, every time you replatform, Brian, in the olden days, you used to lose your SEO ranks on Google. So you lost traffic. And when you lose traffic, you lose sales until you build them back up. And that used to take maybe a quarter, maybe even six months. So it was a, a real challenge. So I have to be honest, um, it, it, was a, it was a real journey. And the reason was, was this. I continually invested. I never let um, the business have its moment in the stars. I would say all the way from 99 to 2008, the business constantly invested invested in technology invested in new warehouses invested in warehouse management systems and then in 2006 the business backed me the family backed me and we we, we built we built a quarter of a million square foot dc and 55,000 square foot store with no outside money 
the family mortgaged everything. Now that adds a bunch of pressure. I was going to say that, that I, I can see two sides to that. One is there's the incentive for you to succeed, but the flip side is there's some awkward Christmas dinners if it goes wrong. Christmas dinners. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it, it's scary. Yeah, um, I, I have a um, it's a wonderful um, accolade that we came out of it. Um, like we did, but during, um, you know, maybe 2006 to 2008, when we were building, we spent six and a half million pounds building this new DC and this new store. Wow, that was um, very scary. And I had to recomputerize uh, again, replatform again, but this time pretty much the whole business. So in those days, that was a ERP. We went, from, we went to Microsoft Dynamics to do our ordering, our purchase ordering, our stock control, our picking. Um, our warehouse management solution, i.e. where is that pallet in the warehouse, um, and, um, and conveyors um, to um, convey product around the warehouse because it was so large, and into different areas where the pickers were waiting for that rattle to box. Oh, deep breath moment. And I had to design all that technology, and, we, and I did design that technology. I designed that um, solution, and then I plugged in what I could from off the shelf, and I found some startups around the world which brings me on to my, my hatched place, I suppose, where I am now. But I found some technology around the world and I pieced it together and I created a platform which ended up winning 45 industry awards. Excellent. Um, retailer, retailer of the week. Sorry, retailer of the year, retail week. You know, two, three, four years in a row. Uh, retail systems, retail multi-channel of, of, of the year. Uh, I was named four times in a row the most powerful man, sixth most, most powerful man in the UK in online, which was kind of funny. Um, I think I was seventh one year and my, I, and my kids gave me a 007, you know, t-shirt to wear <laughs> around the way. And then the following year, I ruined it by being number six. Oh um, and it was, look, it's a family business. It was very, very difficult to bring a lot of the family uh, along on the ride. There were some very bumpy times. Um, ultimately, the gamble paid off. And when you're in business, when you're an entrepreneur, it's a gamble. There's nothing, if people want to um, feel that life is easy, um, then go and get a job. Um, but if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, you know, and, uh, even I remortgaged my house and being in the trenches was very difficult. And to your point about Christmas, there was the old Christmas dinner where nothing was spoken because effectively when you put everything in um, you're hoping for a very good January and January was our best month of the year because January sales and the pressure on the family for that period was extraordinary. It was nothing short of, uh, uh, of not necessarily miracle because we're dealing with, but we were competing against Amazon the supermarkets were coming into coming into it. Mother care, Toys R Us prices were coming down. Value was, was associated with online, as you probably know. You know, in the olden days, online was all about cheaper. It's cheaper online. Buy it online. It's cheaper online. That was Amazon's um, nowadays, track, initial tracking. Yeah, and, and uh, nowadays it's not really cheaper online. It's more convenient online. And, of course, with post-COVID, it's the way to go. But pre-COVID and five, ten years ago, it was cheaper online. Let's go online. It's cheaper. And then it became a race to the bottom on price and a bum fight. Um, and we were very clever um, 
because we introduced our own brand of products, baby weavers, car seats, kitty couture, cots, and all of a sudden we had 40% margin in, in, in our own in our own range. And we couldn't be we, we couldn't we just couldn't be challenged in the market. So you touched on earlier that you had a successful outcome, um, that you had an exit. How did that exit come around? Because presumably in a family business, the 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 first thought is we have this family business, multi-generations. We're just trotting along with this forever. I think that's a really good, a really good challenge. Can you hear me okay, Brian? Yes. That's a very insightful question. How, why, and how should you sell a family business? And is it right to sell a family business? How did it start? We got a call, got a call by a company called Insight Ventures. And Insight were based in New York, um, and they were the early uh, Twitter investors, it turned out. And I met them in London, and they said, can we invest? And it became apparent very quickly what they meant was, can we can we buy? And we kind of floated the idea to the family, and um, they were talking about a $40 million check, which was about $35 million quid in those days, or $30 million. So we were kind of intrigued. We were also, this is about 2007, um, and we were kind of at the point where, what I call an inflection point, you know, do we carry on? Do we invest more? Do we, do we build and, and really push again? Or do we, do we run? You know, do we, do we, do we get out? And um, because the supermarkets and Amazon are lowering their prices and it's getting harder and margins are getting harder and it's getting harder. We seem to be in a bit of a, a bum fight here. And um, we went through some DD with them and they came out the dd and said to us actually you can't get any bigger you you own the market you're the biggest you can get and we looked at them and said don't you silly and they um they bottled it and they and they um they walked away so it kind of had an effect on me really and it had an effect on the family um and we went um through to six 2007 2008 and we built this big warehouse and this big this big dc and we've to prove them wrong really not to prove them wrong but you know what i mean you know we we knew we had something very special um but the catalyst was the initial call and then in 2008 as we were starting to ramp up on this new site we had developed this huge quarter of a million dc 12,000 um pallets 55,000 square foot showroom, biggest baby in, in Europe showroom. Amazon turned up. And Amazon offered us 40 million again. And it was 4-0. This time it was in pounds. And we said, uh, no, thank you. But what it does to the family is seed. It seeds that we're building something. It seeds that we could sell it. And then you have a dilemma because you're talking about a family generation, family business and it's the second generation. And my son... Uh, well, my daughter was 27 now. She was oh, she was eight, nine, ten, whatever she was. She was in the business. There was a third generation there. Um, and what's right and what's wrong? Who runs the business? Who is running the business? Who makes the decisions? And they there started to be a situation where I we all felt it was difficult. It was getting more difficult. Everybody thought from the outside it was a beautiful business and a beautiful organization. And it was. And I'm not over, I'm not going to over, I'm not going to over dramatic dramatize this, but in a family business, the dynamics are extraordinary. It's just <laughs> extraordinary. It really is. My wife was in the business. I didn't we didn't finish work until 9 p.m. every night. We worked seven days a week. 
The board meetings were in a local curry house around the corner. My kids slept under the table. <laughs> the, following, the following morning, we, we got back into it. And when it's a family business and you've put all your money in, the alternative is what? Bankruptcy? You have to make it work. The alternative is what? We have to make this work. And when you invest every year, where's the profits? Well, the profits have gone back in. They've gone back in and they've gone back in. Where's the money? Show me the money. It's gone back in. It's gone back in. It's gone back in. Let's stop investing and take the money. We can't because Amazon's investing. Amazon's investing. Amazon's investing. Shit. So all of a sudden, it's this, Christ, we're on this, we're on a a bit of a a roundabout here. And whilst it's fun and enjoyable, when when does it start to get a bit? So in 2000, and I think it was 2010, yeah, 2010, yeah, I'm, I'm spot on. 2010, it just got to a point where I thought, and, this is, and I've done this really well, Brian, of all the things I've done well in my life, and I've done plenty of bloody things wrong, <laughs> I, I've, no, I've known when to get out. Kitty Care was on, the, on that hockey stick of success. We were doing the numbers, the money was coming back in, our margin was protected because of our own brand. Amazon wanted to buy us primarily because they couldn't beat us in that vertical, and we had our own brand propping up margin. We were doing super well. We just had, um, we, we owned the market and we were considering going into Europe and just looked around and, and, and I thought, can we go into Europe? Well, the, how does a family want to do this? Because we constantly invest and we've never had the outcome. We've never had the money, the spare cash because it's gone into new this and new that and new warehouses and more staff. 300 staff from 10. You know, um, at what point do you say, with no external money, no VC money, nobody had bought in because we didn't know what that existed in those days, if I'm honest. Didn't really have that wisdom, didn't have that, that opportunity. Um, what do you do? So we actually appointed m uh, We appointed a company called Grant Fortin. Uh, we, looked at two, we looked at Deloitte, we looked at somebody else, and GT seemed to be um, the right people. And we spent uh, maybe two quarters creating an IM which is nowadays called an information memorandum. And we put a sales brochure together effectively. And we, all they, sent it around to 20 companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Morrison's came through in the end. They did. And, it, and it, you know, that was an incredible scenario, really, because we had 17 bids for the business and we had five in the last round. They started at 20 and they went up to 50. And in the last round, it developed very quickly because Tesco wanted um, to pick and effectively pick and uh, pick the kitty care store up and replicate it um, in 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 20, 30, 40 sites around the UK. And Mother Care came in and wanted to pick and ship uh, our business into Europe um, uh, and have an online operation in Europe. Um, uh, we had Boots. Uh, we had um, the shop, the Littlewood Boys. Remember Littlewoods or Shop Direct yep. or Very? Uh, those folks turned up and said, "Let's just have it," uh, which is the Barclay Twins, which is um, lovely, and and the Hut Group, which is now relevant because the Hut Group's now floated. So they, Richard turned up, um, which which I remember to this day because I always wore a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. But during the M&A process, I put a bloody shirt on and some trousers, and Richard walked in with a pair of jeans on. Yeah, casual. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, and I thought, well, that's how I do it. Um, so, yeah, and right at the last death, two weeks before kind of decision time, Morrison's turn up. 
Morris, Morrison's Richard Pennycook. Richard Pennycook was their CFO. Morrison's were 16 billion turnover. turnover. Morrison's had 4 billion in cash on the balance sheet. And they walked in my office and said, we want you and we want your platform. We want your platform to take Morrison's.com online. We have watched Tesco the last five, six, seven years make mistakes, which was their version of we've let Tesco get ahead. But we are still saying they've made lots of mistakes and therefore the first mover advantage has failed because they've made lots of mistakes and losses. But Scott, would you like to become CEO of Morrisons.com and use your technology to launch a counter offer against Tesco? Now, when that that when they when somebody walks in the door, I realized very quickly because I didn't have the option to sail off into the sunset. My in-laws, who had earned the right, um, weren't involved in the daily mix of the business by that point. They they weren't. The business was too big. It was too complicated. It was too techy. Um, it was had moved on from the store, little store, to this huge operation. So they weren't involved uh, as such. They were involved in health and safety and. They had uh, they had taken a back seat, which was great because that allowed them to leave. Unfortunately for me, I, I I was not going anywhere. So every single bid had my name on it, and that was Scott. You're staying for a couple of years, regardless of what you think you're doing. You're staying, and I had accepted that. So when Morris when Morrison's turned up and said, "Do you want to become CEO of Morrison's.com and chief architect of our entire business?" And what price do you want? And I said 70. I had 50 in the bag from Tesco. And as soon as I said 70 to Morrison's, Tesco said 70. And then uh, Amazon turned up. Remember, Amazon were at 40. And Amazon's, Amazon offered me 79. <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden, um, I'm sitting there in front of the family saying, what do I do? Um, I knew what to do. And, but remember, the responsibility I felt at that time was to provide for the family and to look after them. And um, it was pretty clear that they were going and I, I, was, <laughs> I was staying. And the rumors around Amazon were, 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 were awful. The rumors around uh, Amazon were awful. They buy your business, they pretty much strip out the talent and kill the talent and then they kill the business. They, they, and I had they, seen they, this. It's, full, it's like the Borg, you get integrated. Yeah, yeah. So I had seen it in diapers. Diapers was this um, dot-com site I mentioned earlier in New York, a half a billion turnover, Amazon buy it, Diapers is closed within a couple of years. Kind of extraordinary, really. How is that possible? Why is that? How do you, how do you create value creation and then dump, dump the business? But clearly what Amazon was doing was dumping the competition. So, you know, if there's any, as you know now, if there's no stores post-COVID, there's no competition. So, um, so Amazon was doing that in the early days by acquiring businesses and, and, and removing them effectively. So I kind of got wind of it and I decided that in, in hindsight, I would not um, go with um, Amazon, which was a big decision at the time. And I would, uh, I would, um, I would swim or, or with uh, our friends Morrison's. And ironically, Morrison's did exactly the same that Amazon were going to do, but they did it without telling me they were going to do it. Oh dear. 
So that didn't work out very well from a... No. You, you, you stayed another couple of years, though, did you? I stayed a couple of years, and um, it was really hard. It was the hardest period of, of my work in corporate life. I stayed to protect the, the staff, the 300 staff we had. And it was, and my wife stayed with me and she was born into the business and she was on the shop floor since she was eight. And she did 25 years in kiddie care as a, as a, a full working person. And she, she, she was associated with the business for 39 years. I mean, it must be hard, even for the people, the, the family who are no longer involved in business, where you're seeing this thing that you've grown and probably loved, and you, you hand it over to Morrison's and they just go. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, and I, I can't blame any individual in Morrison's. I can, I could, I have. But, you know, there's 140,000 people or were. 140,000 people in Morrison's um, when the Kitty Care was acquired in 2011. There was, from memory, about 2,500 in Bradford in their HQ. And when I went to Bradford, I had to navigate a corporate empire we'd like to meet, didn't like to do. It liked to meet, to discuss the to-do. And, you know, £70 million for a leading cutting edge the best baby superstore in, in in europe on the best platform that argos were using boots were using so it could or become morrisons.com quite easily didn't didn't register what you had in a, in a corporate environment was silos from board which we call main board to management board which is where the ceo sits um, to what we call the SMB, which is the senior management group. What you had was Morrison's the grocer by a dynamic cutting edge business. And how does Morrison's the grocer integrate a dynamic cutting edge business when in reality it wants to sell pies and it wants to sell pies in stores. Um, and um, it was very good at supply chain and it still is. And it was very good at stores, which probably still is. And that whole supply chain to the stores, it's super good at. And that was its, that was its space. And they, were, they bought Kitty Care at the time because they had to. They had to placate the city. Remember, they're a city institution. They're a PRC. They're owned by shareholders. And it's become a glaring hole in their strategy. They, they weren't online. And even the city, you know, in, in, in 2013 was what was that now? Sorry, 11, nine years ago, you know, nine years, years ago, the city knew the future was online. They didn't, didn't know what and not to the extent we now know the reality of online versus, versus store. Um, but the city knew and they bought Kitty Care to placate the city. And they, they made me chief architect and CEO. And I went on a journey, Brian, and realized... It wasn't top of their agenda. Yeah, it, it sounds like they kind of bought it in a way, not quite for the wrong reason, but the wrong way that they came to the decision. And that you, you could imagine people forcing them and they're like, well, we've got to do this. And that's not not going to help, help when you get something that's 
culturally very, very different. Um, yeah. No way, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. With hindsight, perhaps you could see how it's it would never work or would be very hard to make work. Well, well, with hindsight, when you look at uh, post-COVID, everybody's scrambling to get online. Everybody's scrambling to do it properly. Everybody's scrambling to have a a solution. You know, even John Lewis are, are desperate to have a proper online solution and now trying to work out what to do with stores. So you can imagine, but when you're not forced to do it, when you've got the, well, I, if you can imagine, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, I, I, when, when, when Morrison's bought Kitty Care, I went to a, a board meeting and I was handed a tie. At Google, the, at Google they were wearing flip-flops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was handed a tie. Now, actually, I thought it was a great joke and I laughed. And even now I think it's quite funny. But, but they reality... Were <laughs> so there was I. There was I in a pair of jeans uh, and a shirt and maybe a jacket, and they, they handed me a tie. Mm. So it was it was a um, an experience, and more importantly, I think it was an experience for the UK board scene at the time and even now. How many? If I'm 49 and those days I was 39, 40, whatever. And how many 40-year-olds were looking after the e-com in those businesses? If you think about Marks and Spencer and you think about Boots and you think about Argos, um, how many corporate structures were geared right to have a youngster, a younger person in the e-com, the multi-channel? And now it's come to bear. Pre-COVID, we lost Mothercare. Pre-COVID, we lost Toys R Us. Pre-COVID, we lost Mams and Papas. Completely. Post-COVID, it's extraordinary because there was no investment outside of the store in their online. When when I went into Morrison's, I simply said, reinvent yourself because you need to to put online first. Capture the data. Capture capture that data so when everybody checks out in your stores, find out who they are. But of course, they didn't have the technology to do that. And the technology to roll out 400 PDQ systems in 400 stores times how many PDQs, how many tills did they have, was two years and three years and four years amount of work. Amazon make a technology change every week. If Morrison's knew who was shopping in those stores and could personalize the loyalty offer to them. And that's what Kitty Care could have done for Morrison's, but Morrison's unfortunately weren't ready for technology sadly um these things happen so what i'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions so i'll put these to you and we'll get uh what you think is the best answer to them so what's the most recent investment you made and why do you make it that's completely unfair (laughs) (laughs) we've just closed four Okay. Um, and um, you know, I'm not going to get these in order, but there's um, body swaps, there's Avion, uh, there's Reflow, and um, there's A another. But if I talk about um, if I talk about body swaps, extraordinary, extraordinary virtual reality, and body swaps are based down south, and they are allowing um, big organisations, so big HR organisations, to retrain people. So if I talk in retail. 
if I talk retail, so and I'm going to go back to grocery, which is probably the wrong thing to do now. I've been moaning for the last half an hour. <laughs> but if we talk, if we talk about, if we talk about um, grocery, we talk about the tills. How do you train from head office, which is always the issue? How do you train the regional offices and the and the stores in the region? If you've got 100 stores or 200 stores or 1,000 stores, how do you train everybody what you want to? Um, Get across without it by without it by without it being diluted by manager or manager or manager or manager. VR, put a headset on, go into a virtual world. That virtual world is is the is the store, is the till, and train everybody on customer service on technology. It's extraordinary. Google are now training their folks with VR headsets. So, yeah, we made an investment in body swaps, um, closed it last month or two months ago. Um, and um, it was a um, not left field for us at all because we usually do B2B. We're known for retail. Um, but I just thought this one was um, a, a really solid um, product, had revenue, really exciting. And I really, I, I really, um, I really endorsed the investment. Excellent. Uh, VR has been one of these things that's been floating around for a while and it's been like, just about there for as long as I've been involved in investment, it feels like. But it's nice to hear that it's time is actually coming. Oh, uh, and you can see it in Zoom, can't you, with the backgrounds, and you can see it, uh, and you can see it with all sorts of um, things now. It's a Snap, Snapchat, where they put bunny ears on your head and, and 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 all this kind of stuff. It's mixed with a lot of AI, and AI is something that um, we've invested into heavily as well with a company called AeroCloud, and AeroCloud is probably not fashionable because it, in the, it because AeroCloud is airport cloud-based SaaS technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about it logically, they've got a great, uh, great customer base in America with the regional airports. They've got uh, Manchester in the UK and, and they're talking to others. But it's, re- it's, it's reducing legacy software, legacy hardware. If you can imagine when you walk into an airport, you see your gate, this, the the, the AeroCloud work out how many people are walking around using AI and, uh, and then are pinpointing the gate based on X. They're parking the, the plane based on X. Very, very, very clever. And um, it's our largest investment to, to date. And I'm very excited about AeroCloud because they are gobbling up old legacy systems left and right. Very cool. Excellent. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market product or management, which one is the most important, do you think? I failed in my early years. In 2014, I invested in a couple of US, using my, using my money in Hatch Angel. I invested in a couple of businesses in the US and both failed. And they were single founder. And um, they, they, they primarily failed because the single founder couldn't cope. And there was no backup plan. There's no help. So you've got to have a strong management team. If not, you know, products can pivot. Products do pivot. Startups. We go in, if I go in on in a minimal viable product, an MVP, I can guarantee you the product's going to pivot all over the place. It's going to change. Um, and, and entrepreneurs and, and folks shouldn't be alarmed about that. They should be excited about that. But management is key. Mm-hmm. Strong management. Okay. You may just have answered this question, but tell us about the time you failed and what did you learn from it? Yes, I uh, invested in uh, two businesses stateside and it, I have lots of friends in America and they won't, like, they won't mind me saying this. 
Americans can speak. They can sell you anything. They are, as they would say, awesome. They're very, very, very good uh, at, at presenting themselves about being bullish, about being networked, about doing it, making it happen. And I got, I didn't get sucked into that because that's not fair. Because I, I love America, uh, a lot of, I really um, like a lot about what's happening in America in tech at the moment. I think it's extraordinary. But um, these, these were single founders trying to disrupt markets. They didn't raise enough. I was, I was early, and um, single founders with no help, and I couldn't help because I was stateside um, or UK side, and um, they, they didn't have the support, and they failed. So the EIS industry in which we work is far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? It's another really emotive question, isn't it? Because um, it was only seven years ago that I discovered EIS. And I suspect the clue is in the word discovered. Why am I having to discover uh, SEIS and EIS um, um, you know, you know, products? Because my accountant turns around and said they, they're tax efficient. Um, it's really disappointing that people are still discovering them. So I would have to say we've got to raise the profile. We've got to raise the profile. And then, and then we've got to do something else. And we've got to make not we you know, I encourage everybody to, who invests in hatch ventures to realize that they're invested in businesses that we are going to get a return on, not get tax relief on. So it's a bit of an emotive question. Uh, I think it's extraordinary. I think it's a um, it's a secret. I think we need to uncover the secret and broadcast it a lot more. And then we need to uh, I think we need to look at the fund managers and say what returns are you providing the community because uh, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and how do we rank it against other funds out there, um, i.e. the stock market. Yeah, yeah. Though I, I think performance measurement is a, is a challenge. Data is limited, I think. But hopefully we're doing a little bit here to help people know a little bit more about EIS. And I think, you know, if I look at Hatch Angels, and this has been... Uh, qualified by you, you and others, you know, Hatch Angels is at is at nine point X return, and Hatch Ventures at five is at five point six, give or take a digit. The reality is, is when when I talk about my aspirations to get ten times return, sometimes I, I meet IFAs who that's a complete turnoff for, because it's risk, and I try and counter that by saying I've got twenty two percent of the fund personally, and every raise my partners put in and we on average own 22 percent i think i think there's a i think there's a challenge in the market at the moment about aspirations and what we should achieve to your point about measurement and uh, and to my point about aspiration and what we're trying to do lockdown has been fantastic for me playing through my unread book list tell us something that you would you like and would recommend to me and as you as i said as i said at the beginning i fell into eis management and um I, you can even argue probably I fell into tech many, many moons ago when I was 16 and I, and I decided I wasn't good enough to play for Posh or Peterborough United mm-hmm. and I wasn't selected. So I, so I went on my YTS journey um, with a local computer dealership and I, I, I was spun out of that and I, and I decided that the vertical of computers was or the right one. And in those days it was games and tape recorders and Commodore 64s and all that kind of stuff. And I've ended up in this space. But along that journey, 
I wouldn't say I was a programmer or anybody in that space. So I don't, I don't read lots of tech books. What I have read was is Richard Branson's uh, suite of, of books and losing his, you know, there's a, there's a book called Losing His Virginity. You know, it's remarkable what you can do when you put your mind to it. And I, I think the biggest problem in being an entrepreneur is that you can get sidelined and it's easy to give up and it's easy to do something different. And you can take, you can hear the voices in your head and you can you can see the looks that you, you get from family and friends when you, you can't come out again, you can't make the barbecue, you can't do this. I thought what Richard achieved when he was a youngster and then moving into to records, extraordinary, you know, and he's, he, he, you know, he, he jumped into that record industry and actually was in the gig. You know, you know, he, he found those people, he found those the Phil Collins of this world and the Stings and all those folks. And then he sold it all and did, and did a plane, you know, you know, and with no common sense at all, because most entrepreneurs don't. They just jump in and make it work. It, they pivot. They make it happen. They change direction. They, they somehow find a way. And uh, he went on a, on, a, on, a, on a wonderful journey. And um, I find it extraordinary where he's ended up. Virgin Galantic, Virgin Hyperloop. And he gets a lot of bad press because, you know, he's based on NECA, but huge fan, mm-hmm. huge fan. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody's perfect, but I think, yeah, what he's achieved is is absolutely incredible in, in so many ways. What do you wish you knew now that, sorry, what do you wish that you knew when you started Hatch that you know now? I think I would be... Um, less bullish on our returns. I think at the moment I'm competing against people who offer one, one and a half times returns from a fund point of view and actually don't achieve those. And here am I saying, I'm going to do 10 and I have to defend myself constantly. So I wonder, and I'm not, I'm not committed to this and I don't feel that I should, but I wonder if I should say, hey, I can do two, I can do three. I wonder if I should left. I wonder if I should left given myself a, a easier time by saying you know two rather than ten. And even though I've achieved ten or nine point something in my angel investments, and I have another business going through M and A at the moment, which is going to smash a couple of hundred, which you'll no doubt no doubt hear about in, in a few few months, and that will be for ventures as well. It, 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 it's a broken record where I have to say to IFAs, hey. We're going to do ten, and they just they, they and a lot of them think, well, that's exciting, but you know we're we're not we're not going to do that, and and the, and the other and some say, sure, and they and then go somewhere else. So I think what I know now about fund management in this sector uh, over the last couple of years is, um, you know, I'm going to stick to my guns and say we do ten. I'm going to be as bullish as uh, I've always been in the uh, in my life in in all my businesses. And, um, you know, and if I say 10, I will make sure we achieve 10 for our folks. Um, I'm not sure that's the perfect answer for you. But, you know, if I talk about my second business very quickly, you know, I created Elevate on the back of um, my experience with Morrison's. And Morrison's were selling shelf space. And they were selling shelf, they were selling space to Hobbits and, Rig- and Wrigley's chewing gum. And that hadn't gone online. So we created a digital version of that. And that's what we, and we call that a private marketplace. So we allowed brands to go onto elevate.com 
to elevate their product position on Morrison's or Tesco's or House of Fraser or not on the high street. Um, and we sold that for 272 times. So I've got a pedigree in the UK of being named, you know, the sixth most powerful in an on- online retail. I've got a pedigree with Kitty Care, which is published. I've got a ped- pedigree with Elevate, which is published. But to answer your question, I think um, I'd like to see IFAs a bit more bullish about supporting folks like me who have been and done it and not being safe. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's, for instruction, there has to be room for that risky element somewhere, you know, even if it's a small part of an overall portfolio, it has to be there. Um, and I think the Elevate store is an interesting one. So maybe we'll have to get you back on the podcast at another date and we can uh, dig into that. Um, Absolutely. It would be wonderful. Yeah. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, where can they get more information? Well, they, I've got a couple of websites. Obviously, Hatch uh, is spelled H-A-A-T-C-H. So that's Hatch.com. You can Google me. Scott Weaver's right as well. And you'll stumble across my story online as well. Um, as we host a, um, some data about me online on my, on my domain. But hatch.com is the place to go. Excellent. So thank you very much for your time today, Scott. We very much appreciate learning more about your story. And as I say, hopefully we can get you back at some point in the future. See you time. Take care. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.